Amen. Thank God for the bread of life. Second Peter chapter 3 this morning, Second Peter chapter 3, if you're using the Bibles provided there by the church, it's on page 1081, Second Peter chapter 3. There's a famous saying that you may have heard, it goes something like this, that in this world, nothing can be said to be certain except death and taxes. Well, those are certainly certain things. But I want to tell you that the most certain thing in the future is the coming of Jesus Christ, the second coming. The most certain thing that the future holds is that Jesus will come again. With that in mind, we return to the book of 2 Peter. In the third chapter, he's moving his subject from the fakes, the fake teachers, to the future. And he's going to talk about the coming of Christ, the second coming of Christ, and the day of the Lord. And he's going to tell us that it is a promise. He's going to emphasize in this passage of Scripture that God has promised the second coming of Jesus. And therefore, if it's a promise from God... We must be prepared for it. We must be prepared for the certainty that Jesus is coming, that he could come for us at any moment, and that he is coming to correct the wrong in this world. So, 2 Peter chapter 3, if you were physically able, would you stand with me as we read the Word of God? Uh, We're going to read the first 13 verses in this chapter. Beloved, I now write to you this second epistle, in both of which I stir up your pure minds by way of reminder that you may be mindful of the words which were spoken before by the holy prophets and of the commandment of us, the apostles of the Lord and Savior, knowing this first, that scoffers will come in the last days walking according to their own lusts and saying, where is the promise? There it is. Where is the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. For this they willfully forget, that by the word of God the heavens were of old, and the earth standing out of water and in the water, by which the world that then existed perished, being flooded with water. But now, excuse me, but the heavens and the earth, which are now preserved by the same word, are reserved for fire until the day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men. But, beloved, do not forget this one thing, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. The Lord is not slack concerning His promise, there it is, as some count slackness or slowness, but is long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Praise God. Amen. You got saved because God was patient. Verse 10, but the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night in which the heavens will pass away with a great noise and the elements will melt with fervent heat. Both the earth and the works that are in them will be burned up. Therefore, since all these things will be dissolved, what manner of persons ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness, looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God, the cause of which the heavens will be dissolved, being on fire and the elements will melt with fervent heat. Nevertheless, we, according to his promise, there it is again, look for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Father, may you bless the reading of your word. May you draw us near to you. May you conform us to the image of your son. If there's one here who's not saved today, there's one here listening today who's not saved. May they realize you've given them time to repent. And today is a day of salvation. 
And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Peter begins this section, this final section, and he begins with this word, Beloved. Those who are dearly loved ones. He uses this actually several times in this chapter. He uses it in verse 8. He uses it in verse 14. Down in verse 15, he calls Paul a beloved brother. And he uses it again in verse 17. And he loves these people deeply. And because he loves them, he wants to stir up their, he says, their pure minds. There in verse 1, I want to stir up your pure minds, your, your sincere minds. It's very important to understand what the Bible says about the mind. The uh, human being has nothing but a carnal mind before we're saved. Before we're saved, we have a carnal mind. That means we can't really understand spiritual truth. It doesn't mean we can't believe in God. Many people believe in God who aren't saved. Most people believe in God. You can believe in God. But you cannot understand spiritual truth. You cannot accept it. In fact, the carnal mind is actually hostile to spiritual truth. Uh, Romans 8 says it this way, 8-7, Because the carnal mind is enmity against God, for it is not subject to the law of God, nor indeed can be so. The carnal mind can't really process it and certainly does not want to live under the subjection to God's truth. Now all the unsaved person has is a carnal mind, a fleshly, natural mind. When you got saved, unfortunately, because you're still in this body, you still have a carnal mind. But you also have a spiritual mind now. God gave you a spiritual mind. Now, you have to live your life and choose which mind will you think with. How will you think? Will you think like a natural, normal, carnal person? Or will you get the mind of Christ? Will you think with the mind of Christ? You have that if you're saved. 1 Corinthians 2.16 says, For he... For who has known the mind of the Lord that he may instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. Jesus lives in us and he brought his mind to us. And we continue to grow as we renew our minds. Romans 12, 2 says it this way. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Listen, you keep renewing your mind by the word of God. You keep renewing your mind through prayer. You keep renewing your mind through worshiping Jesus. And you will walk in the will of God. The reason so many Christians don't have any clue about the word of God and the will of God is that, well, they, they're not, their minds are not being renewed. They're just thinking like a carnal, natural man. Peter writes to stir up their minds. He says, I want to awaken you. I want to arouse you. The word stir up means to arouse someone from sleep. It's a picture of reviving them. Peter is saying, I, I love you and it seems like you've gone to sleep. And I want to wake you up and, and rouse you to, to wake up about the fact that Jesus is coming and you need to be prepared. And just think about it. If that church in the first century had gone to sleep, 20 centuries later, folks, we're in a deep sleep. We keep hitting that snooze button too. Every, sometime, every time somebody rouses us a little bit, we keep hitting the snooze button. COVID ain't woke us up. Ride in the streets ain't woke us up. They can burn America to the ground. I don't know if it's going to wake us up. Peter wants to wake them up. And he wants to do so, he says, by a reminder uh, of, the, of what the, the holy prophets said and the apostles. This is very interesting because think about it. Peter says, I want to make you mindful of what they said 
Well, when Jesus came the first time, just think about it. The people of Jesus' day, the Jews were religious people. They had the Old Testament prophecies. They knew about the Messiah coming, and yet they missed it. They didn't understand that the Messiah came to save sinners. That Jesus came because God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. And all of these people didn't know that and they crucified the Lord of glory. The one who came to save them, they killed because they missed his first coming. And Peter's telling us, listen, we can be just as ignorant of the truth as they are and miss his second coming, not be prepared for it. They weren't prepared. And many people today aren't prepared for the fact that Jesus could come at any time so he begins by talking about this second coming and he says there in verse 3 knowing this first so now he says I want to put in priority for you this doesn't first isn't chronology here it's priority I want to put some priority things in your mind and I want to talk about the fact that the Lord could come at any moment this needs to be a priority for Christian people the fact that when he comes there'll be the day of the Lord eventually and there'll be a great judgment and everything you know and see will be destroyed you need to think about this not last not once in a while but it needs to be priority in your life because Jesus could come at any time so he wants to talk about their coming and there's two things he points out that we're going to see this morning. The first is this. He mentions the scoffing at his coming. The scoffing at his coming. One of the truths about both the first and second coming of Jesus is that there have always been scoffers and doubters. But one thing you can know, as time draws near, there'll be more scoffers and doubters. There'll be religious scoffers. There'll be Everyday scoffers, there'll be just people scoffing and doubting and mocking and ridiculing the things of God. It will increase as the time for Christ to come draws near. Now, he says that they will come in the last days. When is that? Everybody's always trying to figure out what does the Bible mean by the last days. Well, you and I are living in the last days. I say that because the New Testament teaches that the last days are the days between the time that Christ ascended into heaven and when he comes again. Now, are we in the last of the last days? I don't know. But I know we're in this era that the Bible calls the last days. And the Bible predicts that scoffers will increase. And scoffers are those who mock and, and scoff at religion. Nor Webster, that famous dictionary writer, said, A scoffer is one who scoffs at religions, its ordinances, its teachers, who mock sin and the judgments and threatenings of God against sinners. Peter knew this. Solomon knew this in the Proverbs. He says this in Proverbs 1.22, How long, you simple ones, will you love simplicity? Look at that verse. You know what a simple one is? A simple one in the Proverbs is a person whose mind's so open that they don't have any discernment. They let everything in that they can't discern good from evil. Why in the world are so many people in our country... Why have they been brainwashed and why are they so susceptible to propaganda? Because they're simplistic ones with no discernment. They let their mind be filled with every lie possible. In fact, they believe a lie before they will believe the truth. Then he moves to another person, scorners or scoffers. Scorners delight in their scorning. And they hate knowledge. Fools hate knowledge. They delight in mocking and ridiculing the things of God. So, Peter says they're coming. The question is, why do people scoff and mock at the second coming and at the things of God? Why does a person do that? 
Well, Peter gives us two reasons why these people will scoff and mock at the things of God. The first is this, because of their own lusts. Because of their own lusts. He says, walking, living according to their own lust. They scoff, they ridicule, they deny the coming of Jesus and anything that has to do with it because they're living according to their own sinful and selfish desires. And the coming of Jesus would bring an abrupt end to sinful, selfish living. See, out-and-out sinners live according to the flesh and the evil desires thereof. And they don't want anyone to restrain them. Matter of fact, you can't even tell people anything they do is wrong in America anymore. You're judgmental and you're a bigot. But 1 Peter told us, and back in 1 Peter, he says this in chapter 4, verse 2 through 5, that he should no longer live the rest of his time in the flesh for the lust of men. Peter says, you shouldn't be living for the lust of men. You should live for the will of God. Don't live your life like these people, just living for your lust, living for your selfish, sinful desires. For we have spent enough of our past lifetime doing the will of the Gentiles when we walked in lewdness. And this picture's really immodest. Not walking in a modest life, particularly uh, sexually, or the way we dress, the way we conduct ourselves, the way people talk. There's so much lewdness, lust, drunkenness, revelries, drinking parties, and abominable idolatries. This is how people live. He says, and I agree, I spent enough time doing that. I don't need to do any more of that. If you had not spent enough time doing it, you need to get saved. In regard to these, they think it strange that you don't run with them in the same flood of dissipation, speaking evil of you. You have any old friends that used to sin with you, and when you stop, what do they do? They talk bad about you. They will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. See, when people walk according to lust, they deny. uh, They don't want to hear about Christ's return. MacArthur says this in his commentary. Thus, they deny Christ's return because they hate the thought of divine retribution. Everybody hates the thought of divine retribution. You're you're a terrible person if you preach it. It's all through the Bible, man. God will not be denied. God will not be mocked. They want the freedom to pursue all kinds of lustful pleasures without any fear of divine punishment. But sin is an insidious thing. And even as Christians, we must be careful Because we can so easily live for ourselves. See, many Christians aren't living in out-and-out sin. They're not living in adultery. They're not out fornicating, maybe. They're not out at some drinking party. But they're also living for themselves and not living for Jesus. See, we live for self. Jesus says you need to die to self. We're seeking comfort Jesus says, take up a cross. We're looking for a place of ease. Jesus says, find a place where you can wash somebody's feet. And it's very easy for us. As a matter of fact, most American Christianity is just baptized selfishness. We have a religion, not Christianity. We have selfianity. Self is on the throne. Self rules. It's very easy for self to guide it, and we do it in the name of Jesus. God gets the blame for a lot of our selfish desires. Galatians 5, 16 says, I say then, walk in the Spirit, and you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. 
Jesus comes, I want to be walking in the Spirit, not fulfilling the lust of the flesh. And by the way, there's no in-between. If I'm walking in the Spirit, I'm not fulfilling the lust of the flesh. But if I'm feeling the lust of the flesh, I'm not walking in the Spirit. And could it be that the reason American Christians are not really excited about the coming of Jesus, and by the way, do you know the Bible says the second coming of Jesus is our blessed hope? The second coming of Jesus is the hope that we have as Christians. It should be this great treasure. This is why it should be first on our thoughts because this world is going to hell and Jesus is coming from heaven to get us and we ought to be excited about it, but instead American Christians aren't excited about it at all. Titus 2.13, Paul said it this way, looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Listen, and one day Jesus is going to come and that trumpet's going to sound and the dead in Christ shall rise and I'm going to rise and I'm going to, if I'm alive or dead, I'm going to go be with him. He's going to take me out of this world. It is the only hope that we have. It is the great promise that we have. We ought to be looking for that coming, living that when he comes, we will be walking in the Spirit, not in the flesh. So, because of their lust, but secondly, because of their unbelief. Because of their unbelief, Peter moves to verse 4, and he says, uh, they walk in their flesh, this is what they do with their lives, but this is what they say with their lips, verse 4, and saying, where is the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. See, they heard the promise, but it wasn't fulfilled, they hadn't seen it. So they started mocking it. Well, the Bible says it's a promise. Jesus promised it. John 14, 3, Jesus said it this way. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again. That's a promise. I will come again. And receive you to myself that where I am, there you may be also. Isn't that great? I'm going to receive you to myself. I'm coming again. When he went back to heaven in front of the disciples' eyes, remember the apostles out in Acts chapter 1? He went right into heaven. He ascended right before them. Look at this, Acts, 9 through, Acts 1, 9 through 11. Now, when he had spoken these things, they, while they watched, he was taken up. And a cloud received him out of their sight. And while they looked steadfastly toward heaven, I, I love this verse. God doesn't give us time to sit around gazing up into the stars. And while they looked up into heaven, behold, two men stood by them in white who also said, men of Galilee, why do you stand gazing up into heaven? What are you doing, man? This same Jesus, this same Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will so come in like manner as you saw him go into heaven. This is a promise. He's coming back. This same Jesus. You know, 23 of the 27 New Testament books make explicit reference to Jesus' return. Two others allude to it. There's only two books, Philemon and 3 John, that do not mention it. There's 260 chapters in the New Testament. There are 300 references in the New Testament to the second coming of Jesus. It is a promise from God. Now, their argument is a big word called uniformitarianism. You can't spell that with a can of alphabet soup. But it's a word that means everything is continuing in a uniform pattern. This is what they say. Um, since the fathers fell asleep, our, our, our ancient fathers, Abraham and all these folks, uh, they, everything just continues like, like it always was. We've never seen anything like this. Everything's running in a uniform pattern. The idea is that everything is an unbroken continuity of cause and effect, and there's been nothing drastic to ever happen like this. Why would there be anything like this now? See, they, they're materialists, basically, that the, uniforms all, the universe is all there is, 
Another big word, they are anti-supernaturalism. They don't believe there's any supernatural events ever happened. So there won't be any supernatural events to ever happen. And we've heard he's going to come and do all this, and we've never seen anything like this. So why would God or anyone or anything interrupt human history? Well, God gives us little glimpses of this, folks. A tsunami in 2004 wiped out 230,000 people. That's more people than live in this whole county. That's a pretty supernatural event. That's pretty catastrophic, don't you think? God gives us, we see major earthquakes, we see these things. These are just a little glimpse of what can happen, but they're reminders. But these people say, well, it's never happened before, so they go on living like they want to. They go on saying what they want to. God's never done anything. God's never stopped them. God's never stepped in. That's their argument. They were scoffers. By the way, do you think people in America are scoffers at the coming of Jesus? Do you think those burning our cities or allowing it to, to happen or scoffing at his coming? Could you imagine being burning a city and Jesus come? What about those who are aborting thousands of babies a day or supported or vote for it or vote for those who support it? Do you think they're scoffing at the coming of Jesus? What about those who are kidnapping and sex trafficking women and children? 39 children were rescued this week down in Georgia, kidnapped victims. The U.S. Marshals rescued. Do you think those people are scoffing at the coming of Jesus? You're taking somebody's child by night and Jesus surely wouldn't come and judge me. Do you think those in authority who have power and authority and are abusing it or are trying to shut down churches and trying to, uh, to punish people for worshiping God and finding them, do you think those people are scoffing and mocking at the coming of Jesus? Because let me tell you something, Jesus one day will come get his church, but he will also defend his church. I think these people are mockers and scoffers. They are by their lips and they are by their lives. The second thing, is the arguments for his coming. Peter's going to move to now the arguments of why he's teaching that Jesus is coming, why we must believe that Jesus is coming again, and it's going to be a major uh, catastrophic event. And in verse 5 through 9, he points this out. In verse 5, he says, For this they willfully forget. I love this. Uh, The King James says, For this they are willfully ignorant. It's a great phrase. It means to be intentionally unawares to be intentionally unawares it doesn't mean no one told you it means you didn't want to hear it you didn't want to listen to it people do this all the time can i tell you i've been preaching in this church and see people do this people start looking out these windows you can't see anything out those windows I see people looking at the ceiling. I'm like, dear God, man, there ain't nothing up there but lights. People start looking at their phone. They don't want to hear because something that you say contradicts something that they believe. Something unpleasant. Something that contradicts their unbelief. This is why pastors and preachers avoid preaching on controversial subjects. Listen, the only controversy in the Bible is that which you don't believe. That which contradicts you. Nothing in the Bible is controversial. You get saved. You get the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit wrote the Word of God. You will love the Word of God. There won't be any controversies in it. You'll find yourself being contradicted and you'll get right with God because His Word told you how to live. That's what it is. 
I think it's all controversial to sinners, so just preach it anyway. That's the only way they're going to get saved is to be confronted with the truth. It's the way I got saved. The way you got saved. I got confronted with the truth that my life was a wreck because I was a hellion. That my life was where it was because I was a sinner who chose to do what I knew was wrong. And that God loved me enough to hang his son on a cross and raise him from the dead. And if I would repent of my wickedness, God would have mercy on my sorry soul. And he did. Come on, praise Jesus. Well, he gives us three arguments for his coming. The first is this, the previous judgments of God. Now, he's already mentioned these in chapter 2. We studied them, but he comes back to particularly the flood. And he describes it in a really... A powerful way he says that by the word of God the heavens were of old and the earth standing out of water and in the water by which the world that then existed perished being flooded with water he speaks of the heaven of old this speaks of the of creation and it reminds us that the Lord brought the universe into being by speaking his word Genesis 1 God spoke by the way interestingly Peter's making an argument against what these people just said they said hey listen nothing supernatural has ever happened in the whole world so why would it happen now and then he says hey listen you know this whole thing started because God spoke that was pretty supernatural God broke into nothingness with a supernatural word some people say do you believe in the big bang I sure do God spoke and bang it happened I believe in that that's what he says the heavens were of old because God spoke it into existence by the word of God and then he says as God created the heavens, the earth was standing out of water and in water. But this is very kind of deep. What Peter's going to describe is he's going to go back to this creation account. And God shaped the earth between two areas of watery mass. Now listen to this. Genesis 1, 9 and 10. Then God said, let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place and let the dry land appear. And so it was. And God called the dry land earth. Now we call our planet earth. But in the Bible, God called the dry land that you walk on earth. And gathering together of the waters, he called seas. And God saw that all was good. On the second day of creation, God collected the upper waters into a vapor. You read it? What happened was God put a vapor, a watery canopy all around planet earth. This is why Adam and Eve could walk around with no clothes on and not get sunburned. I have to put 70, 80 degree uh, sunscreen on, wear a hat. I may have to, it gets so bad, I'm going to have to wear a burqa or something to keep me safe. Adam and Eve walked around, why? Because God had this canopy of water that encircled the earth. This is why the earth was a, a, the same temperature. The ultraviolet rays of the sun didn't burn people, didn't burn the land. So there was this canopy of water around the earth, but then there were the lower waters. And the lower waters were waters that ran up under the earth. How did Adam and Eve and their plants get water if there was no rain? The water came up from the earth. So God watered the plants from underneath, and he had this canopy of water above. But then the Bible says this, but the world, by which the world that then existed perished being flooded with water. So what God did was he sent a flood. That's the Greek word uh, cataclyso we get our word cataclysmic the flood was described as a cataclysmic event 
And God describes exactly what he did in Genesis 6 and 7. You can go read the two chapters. But I want to show you what God did. He broke up that water above that canopy. And he broke up that water beneath. This is how he flooded the world. Genesis 7, 11. Not a convenient store, but a good Bible verse. In the 600th year of Noah's life, in the second month, the 17th day of the month, on that day, all the fountains of the deep, great deep, were broken up. What's a fountain? Something that springs up, right? Fountain. So this is the stuff from the ground, broken up. Water started springing up, and the windows of heaven were opened up. So God, this canopy that protected the earth, it doesn't protect it anymore. It's gone. God flooded the world with that canopy, and God broke up the ground, and water came. That world that then existed was now changed. The tectonic plates on the earth shifted. The water from the earth that sprang up, it opened up the ground. Things like gases and dust and water exploded, and the whole earth changed. You know, the continents that exist now didn't exist then. There was the earth and there was water. There was this, all this earth was in one place. The water was around it and under it. And then when the flood came, it broke that up. Everything changed dramatically. People no longer lived 900 years. People ask about dinosaurs. They drowned. And when, 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 when God replenished the earth, Man and animals didn't live long enough for there to be any dinosaurs. Everything dramatically changed. Why? Peter says everything perished. It means everything was loosed. What it means is God loosed everything now to experience death. God loosed everything now to experience the wages of its sin completely. God judged this world. He, now, this is important. He flooded it from above and he flooded it from beneath. And he destroyed this world as we knew it, or as they knew it. That was the previous judgment of God. But then he moves to the promised judgment of God. Verse 7, look what he says. But the heavens and the earth, which are now preserved by the same word. What word is that? The word of God. So this world is preserved right now because God's word has preserved it. God has spoken it. The Bible says in Hebrews chapter 1 that he holds all things by the word of his power. This world still exists. As sinful as this world is, God has spoken that it, that it will exist. You know, one day God's going to speak and he's going to speak it out of existence. But he's spoken. It's in existence. He's spoken. It remains in existence. He says these words this, this heaven and earth are now preserved. But then he says, look at the rest of the verse. They're preserved now, verse 7, are, which are now preserved by the same word, are reserved for fire until the day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men. This world that's preserved has a reservation with judgment. This world that God is preserving One day, God is also reserving a judgment for this world. The pre-flood world was drowned by the water that that was all around it, above it and beneath it, right? You follow me? You know where the fire is going to come from? Because God promised, remember, he would never flood the world again. That's what our rainbow is about. Genesis chapter 9. See, the rainbow, it's a mirror. God never said, I won't judge the world. He said, I'm not going to flood the world again. I'm not going to judge the world by the flood. And just as that world was judged by water above and water beneath, just think about it. Fire is above us and beneath us. 
John MacArthur says this, Just as the abundant presence of water facilitated the flood, so the pervasiveness of fire makes a, ferno, a future inferno credible. For example, the galaxies consist of millions of burning stars. Revelation talks about the stars falling from heaven. Even the earth's core contains a huge volume of molten rock that may be as hot as 12,400 degrees Fahrenheit. There is only a 10-mile thick crust that separates humanity from earth's blazing interior. More significantly, the entire creation, because of its basic atomic structure, is a potential nuclear bomb. All this energy that we tap into that's going on, it's a potential nuclear bomb. In other words, just like God flooded the world with the water that was all around it, God's going to burn this world with the fire that's all around it. 2 Thessalonians, Paul says it this way, And to give you who are troubled rest with us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, taking vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, the one sin that will send you to hell is not knowing God. Not obeying the Lord Jesus Christ. Not obeying the gospel. Not believing on him. This fire will result in a dissolved universe. He says it down here in verse 11. Therefore, since all these things will be dissolved. Verse number 12. Looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God because of which the heavens will be dissolved, being on fire, and the elements will melt with fervent heat. He talks about they will pass away with a roar, with a loud noise. You ever been around a fire and hear it make noise? Fires can roar. Could you imagine this kind of roar when the universe, the heavens and the earth, is destroyed by fire? This dissolved universe will melt with fervent heat, a great noise, and a burning inferno. And he says, it will be the day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men. What does that mean? Judgment of ungodly men. Judgment and perdition. Well, just as in Noah's day, the ungodly who had not found grace in the eyes of the Lord, perished in the flood. All ungodly people who have not found grace in the eyes of the Lord will perish. Those without Christ will face perdition. What is that, perdition? You remember one of the names for Judas? He was the son of perdition. You know what that word means? It means utter loss and ruin. Judas was a man, though he was with Jesus, he was utterly lost and ruined even though he was around all the teachings of Jesus, all the miracles of Jesus. His very soul was utterly lost and ruined. Peter is saying this is going to, there's going to come a day when there's no turning back. When he comes, there's no turning back. The ungodly will be utterly lost and ruined with no hope. That's why verse number 8 and 9 is important because it's the patience of God. The patience of God. He says, but beloved, do not forget this one thing that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years is one day. People try to make that as some kind of formula about how we're going to figure out what God's going to do in timetables. That's not what that means. What that means is this. God's not on your timetable. God doesn't operate according to a calendar like you do. God has a plan in heaven. God's above time. God controls time. God works in time. One day God will end. He will end time itself. You and I can't figure it out on calendar when God's going to come and when God's going to do what he's going to do. So the Lord does what he wants to, but here's what he says. Listen, but the Lord's not slack. He's not slow. 
God's not slack. You know, I'll tell you, folks, the only hope any of us have or ever had is the patience of God. The patience of God. See, God was patient with us, not wanting us to perish. Some of us were raised in church, but we took a while to come to Christ. Some of us weren't raised in church. We heard about it, but we just continued on our path. We went on our way. We did our own thing, and we didn't know Jesus, and God was patient with us. How many times have you uh, lived your life, and you sense God calling you back or God calling you to himself? What is that? That's the patience of God. It's the patience of God. God sent his son. He was forbearing with us. Why? Because he wants us to come to repentance. He's not willing that any should perish, but he's long-suffering. You know, our sin causes God to suffer. In patient forbearance, he waits upon us. He calls us and draws us and convicts us. God doesn't want you to perish. God doesn't want those around you to perish. God doesn't want those that you work with to perish, whoever it is in your life. God doesn't want anyone to perish. Those of you sitting home listening today who will listen, God doesn't want you to perish. You perish because you don't want to be saved. Nobody wants to perish, but a bunch of folks just don't want to be saved. And you got two options, be saved or perish. Jesus, Jesus said, for God so loved the world. Remember that verse? He gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believes in him shall not perish. In the greatest loving verse in the Bible, God reminds us there's, there's a perishing coming. This reminds us as Christians. This passage reminds us it's time to get serious about our personal walks with Christ. We need to get serious about our prayer life, folks. We need to get serious about holy living. We need to come to a place of Christ first Christianity, not me first Christianity. God put Jesus on a cross for us. Quite honestly, we need to take up our cross for him. This reminds us of the need to evangelize. There may be somebody you need to go home and call today and say, listen, I want to talk to you about your soul. Jesus could come get his church. I believe if he does, when he does, there's going to be seven years of tribulation. The Bible says it's going to be total hell on earth. Even during that time, you know what the Bible says is going to happen? Because people think, well, surely a bunch of people will get saved then. God's going to judge unbelievers then because the Bible says he's going to send a strong delusion. So people who are waiting for the tribulation are going to get it, but they're probably not going to get out of it. They did not love the truth, and he's going to judge them for not loving the truth. We need to evangelize. Who are we praying for? Who are we fasting for? Who have we witnessed to? Who have we, who have we linked our Facebook uh, service to? And listen, if you don't want to link them here because you're too embarrassed about what I'm preaching, then go somewhere else and let them hear something where they can go to hell from church. This also reminds us to take our church serious. Out of this rotten world, the only thing Jesus is coming for is his church. The church is the pillar and the ground of the truth, and we need to take our church serious. It also reminds us to examine ourselves, to make sure we're in the faith. Why? Because, see, Jesus here, Peter says, uh, he's not one of the any should perish, that all should come to repentance. He didn't say that all should come to baptism. All should come to church. That's all good but all should come to repentance. Jesus said, except you repent, you'll all likewise perish. This morning, if you haven't come to repentance, you have to acknowledge to God that you are a sinner and that you're on your way 
and not God's way. And that you need Christ. That you need to be saved. That you need God to do something in your soul that only He can do. You need to be born again. You may be sitting here today and you've tried. You, you've done your best to be a good Christian. And yet you just have to be honest. I, I don't think I know God. I don't love God. Only God can give you a love for God. God gives you a love for God. Romans 5 says the love of God has been shed abroad in our hearts by the Spirit. You know who will help you love God? God. If you don't love God, it's because you don't have God. You get saved, you repent, you acknowledge to God you're a sinner, you believe that Christ suffered on the cross for you, and that you receive Him by faith. You ask Him into your life. You receive Him. For as many as received into them, He gave the right to become children of God. You confess Him as your Lord and you will be saved. This morning we're going to bow in prayer. and.